Our sermon will come from the book of Psalm, Psalm 18. The book of Psalm, chapter number 13. The title of the chapter is How Long, O Lord? Which is also the title of my sermon this morning. How Long, O Lord? Now we read from the English Standard Version. This is the word of God. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt, dealt bountifully with me. Amen. What David narrates in this psalm truly captures our common experience in this pilgrimage of life. The feelings and the emotions that are laid bare in this psalm are quite common human emotions experienced by majority of people in this life ever since the fall of man. And I'm quite certain that all of us in here today have found ourselves in such a place or in such a season before where we have felt the urge and have even asked this question, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? We have been to a place where we have many at times felt as if God has indeed forgot us, that he has turned his face against us. We've been many a time to a place where we felt like Furatira has turned his face against us. If, if you haven't experienced this in your life personally, I'm sorry to break it down to you. You must certainly will. Remember the subject, the person who authored, who penned down this psalm is David. The man after God's own heart, yet he's having such an experience. He's having such anguish of the soul. Personally, I I recall a time in, in college when I was a student where I truly experienced this dark night of the soul, depression, going through a crisis of faith and financial hardship. And I remember thinking to myself that time, is, is this ever coming to an end? And I've been in similar situations 
many times after. It is truly um, it is truly a difficult experience. You feel like you are just um, walking in a dark tunnel and it never seems to getting to an end. It is a tunnel experience. You feel like you are just trudging in a dark tunnel and you don't seem to be seeing the light at the end of it. It is a cold, lonely winter night which seems as if dawn is far off, which seems as if dawn is never coming. And David in this psalm here, he beautifully and poetically captures that moment, that experience for us where one has really come to the end of themselves, where they have come to the end of their prayers. You have prayed and prayed and prayed to what seems to be of no avail. When one gets to the point where they start asking, how long, oh Lord? The might have tried to be faithful and prayed and prayed, but they get to a point like Anna, where they cannot utter any sensible speech. You have waited and waited and waited till you lose heart. But the Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. This is exactly the kind of place where David is in the psalm. Think about it. The man after God's own heart is going through such a turmoil in his heart, in his life. I want us to have a look at our text again. This is one to two. And I'll break down my sermon. This is one to two. I'll look at, I'll touch on the lament of an anguished saint. Or you could say the lament of an afflicted saint. And from verses three to six, we'll look at the prayer of an afflicted saint, what the prayer of an afflicted saint should look like. So verses one to two, let's read it again. How long, O oh Lord, will you, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? The phrase, how long, how long, O oh Lord, we see it being used in a number of passages in Scripture. Psalm 79, verse 5, being one of them. Um, Psalm 89, verse 46, Revelation 6, verse 10, the martyred saints in heaven are praying, how long, O oh Lord, until you 
take vengeance upon our life that was taken. And even Lamentations, chapter number 5, verse 20. The, apost- uh, the prophet Jeremiah laments how long God will forget his people. How long God will turn his face against his people. But I want you to see what is unique in this text is its repeats and emphasis. It is repeated about four times. And this just goes to show you how heavy this experience probably is. Just how deep uh, the experience David is having is. And what we see from this sound is a mirror of an afflicted saint. It's the mirror of a soul of an afflicted saint. It's a mirror of a soul of someone who is in anguish. So I'll look from this text, verses 1 to 2. What's that? What does the mirror of an afflicted saint look like? As you look at the laments of an angry soul, the laments of an afflicted soul. And I'll, look, I'll touch on four things uh, from the four how longs that we read in verses 1 to 2. And the first lament of an afflicted saint, of an anguished saint that we see from verse 1 is, How long, O Lord, how long will you forget me? Will you forget me forever? Now, this state of feeling, this state of feeling forgotten is the state of men without God. Men without God feels forgotten. He's often nostalgic about something he cannot explain. There's an emptiness that is in his soul that he cannot explain. No matter how much he tries to make this world his home, he feels utterly estranged and alone and lost in the world. Because the longing that he has can only be fueled by God. His heart won't rest until it finds its rest in God, as St. Augustine of Hippo says. In the confessions. C.S. Lewis uh, calls this longing that is in fallen men, this longing of something um, beyond themselves. He calls this uh, an argument for the existence of God from longing, from desire. We have an innate longing in us. That can only be made when we receive God, when we receive Christ. I want us to read Isaiah chapter number 1, verses 2 to 4. Isaiah chapter number 1. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared, 
and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Verse 3, the ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's creep, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. That's the state of fallen men, of men that is in rebellion. He feels utterly estranged. And we often forget that we feel this way because it is, it is us, ourselves, that have rebelled and forsaken God, as Isaiah puts, puts it. It is because we have rebelled and forsaken God that we feel this estrangement, this alienation. That is why we feel forgotten. We feel forgotten because we are the ones who have forgotten God. We have gone too far east of Eden, too far away from, from home. C.S. Lewis in his book, Out of the Silent Planet, uh, a space trilogy that he wrote, he explains that actually, when you look at creation out there and, and you think about aliens out there, people nowadays are fascinated by aliens. But the reality is, we are the aliens. We are the ones that are estranged. We are. The, the silent planet, as he puts it, that is singing out of tune. All of creation eagerly waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. It is us who has forgotten God. And this, we see this tendency in, in our text in Psalm 18, this sinful tendency of, of men, of pointing the finger at God, when it is actually us, we say God has forgotten us. When it is actually us who has forgotten. Psalm 49, verse 56, it says, It is impossible for God to forget. It is impossible for God to forget his children. It is impossible. God cannot forget us. But we point the finger at him when in reality we are the ones that have actually forgotten him. Now to the soul of these afflicted saints, this portrait of this afflicted saint that I'd like to us to have from this psalm, this the soul of this afflicted saying that we would like to do a post-mortem on. It, it often feels this way. To the Israelites, to be forgotten by God, it meant exactly what I just said. It, it, it meant to be estranged. 
It is the estrangement that one feels when the presence of God forsakes them. Lamentations, chapter 5, verse 20. The Lamentations of Prophet Jeremiah, chapter 5, verse 20. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old, unless you have utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. This feeling of, of being forgotten, it is, it, 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 it is the feeling that the people of God experience when the Shekinah presence of God departs from them. Um, in First Samuel chapter number 5, when the Ark was captured, when the Ark of Covenant was captured, when they brought the news to one of Eli's son's wives, she, she broke down and gave birth and named the child Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. People mourned at that because they, they knew what that means. They, they knew what it means for the glory to depart. It is an exile. This is how the Jews felt for all those 70 years in Babylon where they could not worship Yahweh in the temple. It was a long exile. And that's what Jeremiah is lamenting. The glory which has departed. And he asked God that he would restore them to their former position. Yet even Christians, now, we often feel this sense of being forgotten. When we find ourselves in seasons like David was, and we often feel this sense of being forgotten and being this sense of estrangement from God. And God often for various reasons, withdraws his presence. Even though he does not utterly abandon us as he did the Israelites, because Christ promises his saints he will never forsake them. But the Holy Spirit often withdraws himself from them. And they often feel this exile of the soul. Listen to what the confession says, uh, chapter 5 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Chapter 5 and paragraph 5 of divine providence. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes live for a season, his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon themselves, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin, and for other just and holy ends, so whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good.
And also chapter 17, paragraph 3. Here's how it reads. Chapter 17 of the perseverance of the saints. And though they may, speaking of the saints, through the temptation of Satan and of the world, the prevalence of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Yet shall they renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. So Christians often go through this dark night of the soul where they feel that God has abandoned them, where they feel estranged. And God allows it for various reasons. And I want to ask you this morning, does this describe you? Do you feel utterly helpless against sin? Do you feel defeated and perhaps abandoned? I urge you this morning, wounded and afflicted brother or sister, to run to your dear Savior. He shall supply all you need as we are singing. And as the days go by, your strength shall be. Be encouraged that even though you may go through this experience, he will never, never forsake thee. Amen. I want us to continue with our exam, um, examination of the soul of an afflicted saint. And look at the next point, the next lament, which is when David says, how long will you hide your face from me? Again, this is the natural state of fallen men east of Eden. He feels God is hidden, his face away from him. And again, I want to expose this sinful tendency of men, of us wanting to point at God, to point figures at God, when in reality, it is really us, the perpetrators of evil. Atheist men arrogantly submit that if God exists, he must be wicked, because all the evil we see in this, because of all the evil we see in this present world. He absolves himself of all responsibility of wrongdoing. But the reality, friends, is we are the perpetrators of evil. Some may ask, what is wrong with the world? It is you. You are what's wrong with the world. Um, me too, but mostly you. You are what is... Fallen man is what is wrong with the world. And this is exposed in Genesis chapter number 3, verse 
9 to 11. Genesis 3. Let me start at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. It is us who is in hiding. God does not need to hide. It is us who is in hiding, in our shame, in our nakedness before God. In us having no ounce of righteousness to stand before a holy God, we absolutely cannot stand it. And sinful man is hiding. He's gone further east of Eden. He evades God. He cannot withstand his holy presence. Now I want you to understand this uh, statement that David is lamenting of God hiding. How long will you hide your face from me? For the Israelites... For God to hide his face or turn away his face from them, it is a predicament worse than death. There is nothing as, as worse as this. For God to turn away his face meant to be utterly forsaken by him. It meant to be exposed naked before his holy and fierce wrath. It, it meant as uh, Jonathan Edwards puts it, it meant that the wrath of God presently rests above your head. It meant that his full displeasure was upon them. That's what it means for God to turn his face away from them. It means he's angry with them. It is a reversal of the blessing in number six. Let me just quickly read number six. Well, no, numbers, uh, the benediction, number six. Um, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. For God to turn his face against his people and men said the verse of this. It meant the opposite of this. It, 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 it meant for the people of Israel the way that they would read and understand that text, if God had turned his face against them, is that the Lord chased you. The, the Lord had chased them. He, his face was no longer shining upon them. 
He had turned his face away from them. It, it, it literally meant that God's case was upon them. It, it means bearing God's full wrath and displeasure. As the scapegoat in Leviticus, which was meant to bear the burdens of all the, the, the sins of the people, where God would pour his wrath, the, the scapegoat was um, left to wander away outside of the camp into the desert, away from the presence of God. But oh dear saints, is, is this you? Do you feel God's displeasure upon you? Do you feel his wrath upon you? Do you feel exposed to his judgment and feel guilt and shame as if you are naked before him? Is this the reason why you have been running away from him and feel you can't stand being around his saints and feel like you can't stand being in the gathering of the Lord, in the congregation of the Lord for your fear of being found out or being seen. I urge you solemnly this morning to run to the Savior and make no delay. Hide yourself in Christ's righteousness who bore all God's displeasure and full cup of his wrath on the cross for you. Whom God forsook as the scapegoat turned his face away from and cursed, cursed be he that hangs on the tree. He was cursed for our redemption, as Galatians 3 puts it. Please run to Christ and make no delay. Um, thirdly, um, the third thing that we'll examine in this, in this soul of this afflicted saint his next lament is, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Um, this third question, this third lament here, it's truly and it truly um, critiques our modern generation, our modern self-absorbed, self-looking generation. It exposes fallen man's state of misery without God. In Paradise Lost, uh, uh, written by one of uh, the best English poets, John Milton writes, Farewell, happy fields, where joy forever dwells. Hail, horrors, hell. That's what happened to fallen men when he was chased away from Eden, when he was chased away from the presence of God. He bid farewell to happiness. He bid farewell to joy and horrors and misery is what he sees.
Blaise Pascal in a book called Pensies, one of the most uh, powerful apologetic for our modern generation. He writes uh, a famous quote where he says, all of humanity's problems stem from men's ability, men's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And most people are surprised to find this out. It is rather a very difficult thing. Uh, you can try it out. To sit alone, perhaps in a dark room alone for 30 minutes without doing anything, no distractions. You find out that most people aren't able to do this. And the reason why we can't, the reason why we know, the reason why we can't do that, it is because we know the misery that confronts us. We know the wretchedness that confronts us. Paul says, nothing good dwells in me. Absolutely nothing. And when we do that self-introspection as David was in the psalm, it only leads us to sorrow and misery. And this is the reason why we find it difficult to read the Puritans. Because they are so self-introspective. They will expose your wretchedness. Um, I will confess, uh, up to date, I, I have a large book that I was given by Brother Preacher uh, when he left for Malaysia, uh, the works of Jonathan Edwards. I still find it difficult to read Jonathan Edwards' uh, diary because he was so self-introspective. He hated his sin so much. And I know that if I open that book and look into his life, I'll be forced to introspect. And it will force you to look into yourself. And that's the thing that we don't want to do. And this is the reason why people that have lived out this self-feasing gospel, this look into yourself uh, gospel of our times, this uh, you, are, you are your own savior, this war, it's all in you, this war, uh, you are enough. Most people that actually buy into that, they are shocked when they are faced with the honest truth that when they look into themselves honestly, they find out, where am I fooling? <laughs> so kept, I am no hero. I am not enough. I am not a savior. And this is frankly the reason why they are dismembering themselves. And literally killing themselves. Transgenders of the highest um, suicide rates. They, they cannot withstand life when you look into yourself 
you see your misery, your wretchedness. Um, I'll quote Pascal again. He says in Pences, Knowing God without knowing our wretchedness leads to pride. Knowing God without knowing our wretchedness leads to pride. He goes on to say, Knowing our wretchedness without knowing God leads to despair. Knowing Jesus Christ is the middle course because in him we find both God and our wretchedness. And this is the predicament our afflicted saint finds himself in. He laments because he knows the longer he takes counsel in his own heart and looks to himself, the more sorrowful sorrowful and miserable he becomes. If you look at your own wretchedness without looking at God, you kill yourself. It will lead you to despair and depression. This is why many people today are depressed. They are being exposed to their wretchedness and they can't do anything about it. Most people are surprised when they try to examine their puritans because you would think with the way they were so self-introspective, with the way they hated sin, they hated their sin, with the way they were so militant against even hidden sins, I read when, when I was reading the, uh, the diary of Jonathan Edwards, at one point he, he confessed that um, he had an evil dream. I don't know what he dreamt, but he woke up and, and confessed that he prayed against that, you know, unconscious inclinations of his heart so that the, the Lord would rid him of that. And many people think that such people who are that incisive against sin will be the most miserable. This is why we don't understand the Puritans. We think of them as killjoy. But in reality, they were the most joyous people that you'd ever find. And the reason why it is that, it is because for one look that they took at themselves, One look that they took at their own wretchedness. They took two looks at Christ. They took more looks at Christ, his graces, his maces. Their wretchedness drew them to God. It made them realize their dependence on God. It made them realize how much they need God. This, this morning I ask you... Uh, if this is you, oh dear saint, you find yourself in a state of misery and depression and declension and unhappiness. I urge you, do not try to use diversion, diversion tactics. That's what many people try to do. They go on social media. We have so many things that distract us from doing the honest work of introspection in our day. 
I urge you to think and tremble this morning. Are you really saved? Are you really killing sin in your life? Do you have you union with, with, with Christ? And when you take an honest look at yourself and see how wretched you are, I urge you to look to Christ all the more. Romans chapter number 7, verse 24 to 25, Paul ends uh, uh, one of his best uh, chapters by saying, Wretch, oh, wretched men that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Praise God for Jesus, in whom we have victory. It's only in Christ that we have victory over our own wretchedness, over misery, over our own soul's states of happiness. Look to Christ, saints. And then fourthly, the lament that we see being made by this afflicted saint, which is also painting a picture of... Uh, this is also painting a portrait of what the soul of an afflicted saint looks like. Is the fourth lament is, How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? David, in this season and state he is in, it all too often seems like his enemy is exalted over him. This is a man's question of justice. One of the words that children um, more often seem to learn quite early and even without a lot of effort is it's not fair. It's not fair. This sense of injustice is often perceived early on. And this is also uh, at the heart of Asaph's similar lament in Psalm 74. Let me just read it. Psalm 74. Verse 10 to 11. How long, O oh God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand, take you from the fold of your garment and destroy them? We often do this. How long? How long will these people, these evil people remain in power? As bubbles go through this after every election cycle. <laughs> Prophet Habakkuk as well. Habakkuk chapter number one, verse two to four. Let me just open it quickly as well. Habakkuk 
book of Habakkuk, chapter number one, verse two to four. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Maybe this is you, perhaps. Perhaps you feel life has not been fair to you. Or the government, or people, or your parents have not treated you rightly. Perhaps you are in this season asking, why me, God? Why is it that I always go through these things? Perhaps you are asking, why does it seem the wicked are prosperous? And the righteous seem to be struggling. Like Abraham, perhaps you are posing this question. Shall the judge of the earth do what is right? But I want you, I want you to see how the psalm takes a turn and transitions from verse 3. Right at verse 3. I want to quickly draw you towards the prayer of an afflicted soul, of an afflicted saint. It is a, it is a complete turnaround. And I pray that seeing this would do the same for you. And even as I get into this, from verse 3 to, uh, to 6, let me just quickly read it. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I want you to notice that this turn around that happens in the sound. It's not so much because... David's situation has changed. But you can't help to see the, but see the change. You can't help but see the contrast. David, the anguished or afflicted saint, he called unto God. In verse 3, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. 
So he called unto God. He realizes that only God can come to his rescue. He realizes that the things that he is seeking for, the longing that he has, the longing that he has uh, for security, assurance, comfort, happiness, the peace that he is seeking, he can only find, find it in God. He recognizes that his salvation is in God alone. He realizes that Christ is the answer to his problem of alienation from God. And as Romans says, Romans saint says, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this afflicted saint calls upon the Lord. And then secondly, he prays that his eyes would be enlightened. Oh Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And he recognizes now, even though nothing much has changed, that the real issue here is his false perception of what's going on, which if not changed will lead him to death, to spiritual death. He realizes he's looking at what's happening in his life through his lens and not through, the, through faith. And he asks God to enlighten him and change his perception. Oftentimes, when we go through this dark night of the soul, we often look at things from our own weak and frail vantage point. Only if we could look at our lives, at our situations, through the lens of eternity. And this is what we are aged to do. In the Gospels, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is not just a future reality, but it is also a present reality in that your pilgrim, even though you mourn and you are burdened with many things, your pilgrim is made lighter by the promise of comfort at the end. It skews the way, it changes the way you view your present suffering. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul says, uh, For I reckon that the sufferings of these present times, they are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed afterwards. That is the reason why the early church could go through suffering with joy. It's because their eyes were set on eternity. They had a true perception of what was going on. They were looking at Christ, who also for the joy that was set before him, endured the sufferings and shame of the cross. He knew that it was just temporary. 
Oh, that God would enlighten our eyes. Oh, that God would fix our eyes towards eternity. And then the third thing that um, the afflicted saint does, we see it in verse 5 when David says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. He trusts in God's steadfast love. Instead of looking at himself, instead of trying to find solace and comfort and assurance and counsel in his own heart, his wretchedness, his sorrow, it leads him into the arms of a loving and gentle Savior. He rejoices in Christ, his salvation, and he discovers true joy. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17. I quoted from Habakkuk chapter 1 as well. He had a similar lament. But when the chapter ends, he says, this is how he ends his lament. Even if the fig tree does not blossom, even though there is no fruit on the vines, even if the produce of the olive oil and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no head in the stores, yet I will take joy in God my salvation. Even though if my situation changes not, even though I remain in this place that I am in, even though I remain in this place that feels like exile, I'll still rejoice in God, my salvation. Job comforted himself in a similar way. Even though my flesh fails, I believe, I believe in my, I know that my Redeemer lives and with my flesh I shall see him at the last day. And then lastly, the afflicted saints Saint exalts or praises in God's justice. Verse 6, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The word bountifully there, um, uh, it, 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 the word that is denoted bountifully there, it, it means repay or recompense and that's what he's saying he has gone from questioning God's justice and grumbling over his enemies exaltations over him but now he's singing praises unto how God has done right by him he's singing of God's faithfulness the prophet Habakkuk was told in Habakkuk chapter 2, God's response to, to him, to his lament is, the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, he's told that the just shall live by faith. The afflicted saint will by his faith live. I'll end this sermon with... Romans chapter number 1, verse 16 to 17. 
where the Apostle Paul draws on on all of this to highlight how the gospel makes things right, makes men right, and reveals God's righteousness. Romans chapter number 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, quoting Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Not only the imputed, the righteousness of Christ, which he imputes unto us, the weak, uh, the Greek word that is used there for righteousness is pistis. And it also means the faithfulness of God. It means God's faithfulness is revealed in the gospel. That question that was asked by Abraham, shall the judge of the earth do what is right? And the, the question we have all been asking, the question that we have all been remembering from our tender ages, it is not fair. It is not fair what is happening. Is answered in the gospel. God did right in, in, in Christ his perfect justice is displayed. Justice and mercy kiss as he pours out his wrath for all the sins of men on his only begotten son that he may make right all those who believe in him. As it is written, the just shall live by his faith. So if you came here asking, how long, O Lord, let me point you to the cross. Won't you believe in Christ and live? Amen.